morning. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians, I can't Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is God's word. Christian life is a fight. That's what we've been talking about the past few weeks and what the Apostle Paul is showing us in this passage. And the foe that we're up against is not our spouse. It's, it's not our unruly kids. Uh, it's not that annoying coworker. It's not the Republican or the Democrat next door. Our foe is who? Yeah, the devil, like spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, powers and principalities, all of that. Um, which means that we're up against uh, an enemy in this spiritual battle who is evil, he's powerful, he's cunning, he comes against us with schemes. Like he wages war in methodical, uh, intentional ways. So we've looked at all of that, um, but we've also seen that we are not alone in this battle. In fact, if we go into the battle as if we are alone, we're doomed to fail. Um, the, the enemy who we face, in fact, is an enemy who has already been defeated, and not by you and me, but by Jesus Christ. Jesus came, Scripture tells us, to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy. That sounds extreme. It sounds like they're done with, like they're gone. Uh, he has done that through his life, death, and resurrection. And so we're up against an enemy who has already lost, even though the battle wages on. Like, I don't know, everyone knows, like, the D-Day, what is it, D-Day, V-Day analogy. Are you all familiar with that? So that's a lame one. Uh, I was trying to think of another one. I don't know another great analogy. Other than this, like, when I, I'm not a great chess player, but I used to play Isaiah and Judah in chess when they were really little. And, it, and it's like um, the battle was over before it began. Right? Like I was going to win. <laughs> and, uh, and then recently Judah beat me in chess, and Isaiah has beaten me a couple of times. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying they're great chess players. I'm saying I'm not a great chess player. But it's kind of like that. If you've, if, you've, if you've ever played someone who's really good in chess, like the game can play out, but it was over from like the first move. Right? It's over from the first minute. And something like that is going on. Um, like, w our enemy has lost, but the, the battle uh, wages on. He still has schemes. He can still attack and deceive and tempt and accuse. And Paul calls us four times in as many verses to stand and to withstand. He's not calling us to go out and defeat evil. 
Uh, he's not calling us to go out looking for fights with spiritual forces of evil. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, he's saying the fight will come to you. It will come to you. And when it does, stand. Stand firm. Stand against the scheme. Stand. Now, how do we do that? How do we stand against the schemes of the devil? We put on the full armor of God. That's what Paul says. Put it on. The strength we need to stand is not, not ours, it's God's. And the way that Paul gets at this is through this metaphor of armor. He's connecting, uh, he's connecting the different pieces of armor that a ring work. And, and that's what we're going to begin looking at this morning. Now, look, I promise this series isn't going to last forever. We're going to be in it for just a couple more Sundays. Some of you are probably getting sick of, like, spiritual warfare. It's, oh, spiritual warfare. Almost done. But we're going to look at the armor. Um, remember that central to the devil's schemes is deception and deceit. We've looked at that. He's a liar. He'll do whatever he can to get us uh, distrusting God's love, resisting his grace. So, so he has all kinds of strategies, I assume, but that's one of his big ones. Uh, and I think scripture makes that pretty clear that the devil specializes in deception. Uh, he always comes at us with the lie. And so it's not a coincidence that when Paul uh, begins listing off the, these pieces of armor, he begins with the belt of truth. It makes sense that the armor of God, like our main defense against the devil, whose main method is lying, involves truth. Paul connects truth with the belt. And it's important to know that um, the, the belt of an ancient Roman soldier wasn't exactly like the belt I'm wearing now. I am wearing a belt. You can't see it. Uh, you might be wearing a belt. It's not like that belt. It's not like uh, the belt that you might find on a cowboy down in Texas. That would be more like a righteous shield, which is to really confuse things. But the belt of a Roman soldier was kind of like a girdle, which was worn under the armor and that helped to hold everything else together. And, and so truth, Paul might be suggesting, is like the, the um, belt of our spiritual armor. It's what unifies the armor and holds it together, which means that in the next couple of weeks when we move on to other pieces of armor, like the belt is just going to be assumed, right? We're not going to move past it. Uh, like um, righteousness and the gospel of peace and faith and salvation and the word of God these are all helpful in the battle against our foe to the extent that they're true. Uh, the, the truth of the resources God gives us for the spiritual battle, it's foundational. It's what ties everything together. Um, so this is where Paul begins. Let's just think about how truth helps us in our battle with the devil. How does the truth help us to stand against his schemes? And to get at this, I think it's good to remember that what Scripture suggests and what the tradition has kind of always seen uh, is that sin always involves a turning away from truth in one way or another. It's like at the root of sin is a lie that works itself out in our hearts uh, and in our minds, in our minds, like in how we think and believe and interpret and trust, but also in our hearts, uh, in, in what it's reflected by our desires and our longings and by what we treasure by what we really give allegiance to, by what we worship. Um, and, and so all of our behavioral level sins are kind of outworkings of a deeper primal sin that is about turning from truth, about not trusting God. Like usually when we think about 
sins, we're thinking about behaviors. Um, but sin goes way deeper than behaviors. It's about what we believe and what we trust and what we worship, what we live for. And we see this going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible story. You remember Adam and Eve, when they eat from the tree, um, they do that because the snake comes at them with a lie that leads them to doubt the truth and the goodness of God's word. In Romans 1, when Paul is describing the human predicament, he tells us that humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than, than the creator. And see, there it is. Like, um, foundational to all sin is this like fundamental turning away from truth toward falsehood. And the devil is just wrapped up in all of that. Um, it, it's, it's like behind every sin is this lie, and every time we sin, like at that moment, we're being deceived. We're turning away from truth. We're looking to someone or someone other than God to fulfill us, to make us happy, to bring us satisfaction and meaning and purpose and joy. Um, Paul says, stand firm, having fastened on the belt of truth. Uh, it's like if we're going to stand firm in this battle with spiritual forces of evil, um, our hearts and our minds need to be wrapped up in the truth of God. We talked about Jesus in the wilderness um, a couple of weeks ago, but just think back to that episode in the life of Jesus. It's right after his baptism. He's cast out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days by Satan, and Satan comes at him over and over with the lie. The devil is just relentless. And uh, how did Jesus respond? How did he respond to the lie? Yeah, like, he always responded with the truth of God's word. He counters the lie that stands behind every deception and temptation and every accusation with the truth of God. And so uh, that's a skill, I think, for us to learn in our battle against evil, um, to, to counter lies with truth, to stand having buckled on the belt of truth. I've been helped here by a teacher named Tim Chester, a British guy, and he, in one of his books, he identifies uh, four of God's truths that are helpful in countering some of the devil's big lies. He calls them the four G's, and you'll see why they all start with G. Uh, I'm just going to go through them, and maybe, maybe this will be helpful to you. And if it's not helpful to you, you know, uh, there's always next Sunday. Um, <laughs> the G. Yeah, the, the fifth G. Um, here's truth number one. God is great. God is great. Uh, think of how often our sinful attitudes and behaviors flow from the lie that we need to be the ones who are in control of our lives. Like, we need to control our lives. Like, how much of our anxiety flows from that? How much of our impatience? How much of our greed? How much of our fear? Um, so often we live as if God is weak or impotent, like it's up to us to take charge of our lives and make sure things work out for our best. Um, scripture consistently portrays God as great. Like he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Uh, he's completely competent to rule over the universe in general, but also over your life in particular. God is completely competent to rule over your life. Um, you remember 
that time when Jesus and the disciples are in the boat. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and this, this huge storm sneaks up on them. And the winds are howling. The waves are crashing against the boat. It's taking on water. The disciples are panicking, right? They're, they're fearing for their lives. They're sure that they're about to die. And Jesus, what's he doing? He's sleeping. You know why he's sleeping? Because he's tired. <laughs> um, <laughs> because he's tired. Uh, it's so true. And, and, uh, and, and also because he knows that um, he lives in a world where he can be tired and where he can lay his head down and rest because God, his heavenly father, is totally competent to rule over his life. Jesus just trusted that. He lived in it. He, he walked in it and he slept in it. He just trusted it. Um, and, and so they wake him up, say, Jesus, what, what in the heck? Like, why are you sleeping in the middle of this hurricane? And he wakes up, he speaks a word, the storm is suddenly stilled, and then he looks at his disciples and he says, why were you so afraid? <laughs> he says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Um, see, the disciples were freaking out, but what Jesus draws their attention to is that beneath their behavior, beneath the freaking out, was this much deeper issue of trust. And Jesus is wanting to help them with the truth. Family, uh, God is great. And so we don't have to be in control. We don't have to be in control. Obviously, God's greatness doesn't mean that your life is going to be free from storms, right? I mean, a lot of you are in them right now. It doesn't mean you won't experience pain and difficulty and suffering. And it doesn't even mean that that won't bring, like, real um, confusion sometimes and, and provoke really deep questions. But God's greatness does mean that at the end of the day, we do not have to fear the circumstances of life. We don't have to live in fear. God knows what we need, and he knows what we can handle with him. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Truth number two, God is glorious. Uh, one of the reasons we embrace sin is that we um, often crave the approval of other people, or we fear the rejection of other people. And one of the ways the Bible talks about this is with the phrase, the fear of man, the fear of man. Um, Proverbs 29, for example, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. So the fear of man, just the fear of other people, um, this can be expressed in all kinds of different ways, like susceptibility to peer pressure, being overcommitted because we don't know how to say no, um, fear of being exposed, telling little lies that make us look better than we really are, uh, easily becoming angry or jealous or anxious or depressed because of what other people say about us, constantly comparing ourselves with others, not being able to handle criticism, being reluctant to speak the name of Jesus because we're worried about what others are going to say. Like, all of that can be an indication that our hearts and minds, that in our hearts and minds, people have become too big and God has become too small. And here's the truth. God is glorious. God is glorious, and so we don't have to fear others. We don't have to fear others. Embracing that truth means fearing God in a biblical sense, not, not being scared of God, uh, but respecting God and trusting God and surrendering. 
to God. God is glorious. Um, it's his opinion that ultimately matters. It's his word about us that ultimately matters. And, and so pleasing him um, can just be elevated to a much higher priority than pleasing other people. God is glorious, family. And so take that truth and uh, buckle it on. Wrap yourself up in it. You don't have to live in fear of others. Here's truth number three. God is good all the time. Uh, you know, one of the most powerful lies the devil tells us is that God is not good, and because he's not good, um, we need to look elsewhere for real satisfaction and real joy. The devil says that living a life of obedience to God means uh, giving up what's really good for us. That's what, he, that's what he said to Adam and Eve, and that's what he still whispers to you and to me. He tells us that real happiness will come as we live for success or security or power or pleasure. Um, and, and the devil would have us believe that like, we can actually find real joy by pursuing all of that. Find real joy apart from God. That our true good is to be found in going on our own way. Um, he, he would have us believe that the pleasures of sin are real and that the joy of God is distant and ephemeral, fleeting. But what's the truth? I mean, pretty much the exact opposite. You remember what Jesus says? He says, um, is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. He says, uh, whoever drinks the water that I offer, Jesus says, will never be thirsty again. He says, I've come so that you may have life and have it like in all of its fullness and all of its goodness, like abundantly. He says, I'm the bread of life. Like over and over again, Jesus is making it clear. Which, it's crazy to think about this, that like a first century Jewish man went around making these claims, but he was saying like, I have what you really want. I have what your soul really needs. And Jesus would invite people to himself over and over again to find real joy, real satisfaction and fulfillment. Um, that means, family, that the invitation to know and trust and love God is not an invitation to this dreary existence of abstinence, but an invitation to abundance and deep joy and lasting fulfillment. Life with God and for God just is the good life. It is the good life. And if you don't believe that, I want to um, challenge you to test it. Test it. The next time the devil comes at you with the lie that sin is more satisfying than God, and look, that'll probably happen like later today or tomorrow, um, then strap on the belt of truth and stand. Strap on the belt of truth and stand. See if obedience doesn't bring you a better, deeper joy. God is good. God is good. And so we do not have to look elsewhere. Here's truth number four. God is gracious. One of the lies the devil tells is that, um, especially in light of our sin, now it's up to us to win God's favor and approval. Uh, when we fail, he comes at us with the lie that we'll um, never be able to earn God's acceptance and welcome. We'll never have it. 
he, he tells us that our relationship with God is basically something that we're responsible for. And the result is that when things go well in our lives and in, in, in our lives with God, well, then we're filled with pride. And when things don't go well, we either blame ourselves or we blame others or sometimes we blame God. And, and it puts us on this religious roller coaster where we're just always up and down and up and down according to our performance. And what's the truth? What's the truth? You know, you can move. Um, we read the truth this morning. Listen again. God does not deal with us according to our sins. I wonder if you believe that. That God doesn't deal with you according to your sins. <laughs> he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And we're dust that God loves. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we're weak. We're, we're frail. Like we, we, we're kind of a mess. And he is so gracious. Um, the truth, family, is that God is gracious. And so we don't have to prove ourselves. Dust cannot prove itself. God isn't looking um, to you to make your relationship right with him. He's inviting you into a relationship that has already been made right by Jesus. Do you see that? God is gracious. And, and by the way, I told you last week that doing spiritual warfare is kind of boring. That, that's what we're doing right now. This is spiritual warfare. See, it is kind of boring. But that's what we're doing. We're taking truth. We're starting to fasten it on. Anyway, those are the four G's. Do you remember them? Have you already forgotten? God is great, glorious, good, gracious. So he's great. So you don't have to be in control. He's glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. I mean, we have like the fountain of living waters right there with us. Um, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. Now, of course, those aren't the only truths about God, right? Um, but those are some pretty big life-changing truths that so often we lose sight of in our day-to-day -day battle when the devil is just coming at us relentlessly with the lie how can we carry these truths with us? How can we live these out? Let me just say a couple of things uh, here at the end. In Psalm 103, which uh, we read from earlier, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. Yeah, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. He's talking to, like, his real self. And, and he's encouraging himself with the truth about God, of God. He's, he's putting on the belt of truth. And, and so this is like a skill that I think we're being invited to learn and to practice. If we're going to be able to call God's truth to mind and meditate on it and be encouraged by it, like one of the ways, um, one of the practices that it would be good for us to have is like the practice of learning and knowing and even memorizing scripture. 
part of putting on the belt of truth is just knowing God's word really well. Uh, what if Jesus had gone out into the wilderness without a deep knowledge of scripture? What if he hadn't prepared by spending years of his life reading and studying and learning God's word? Like, how would he have responded to the devil's attacks when the devil is just quoting scripture? What if Jesus didn't know scripture really well? Like, well, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened, but I'm thinking maybe it wouldn't have gone so well for him and for the rest of us. And so practice reminding yourself of the truth uh, when you're stuck in traffic and just freaking out. God is great. So you don't have to be in control. You don't have to be in control. Uh, when you're tempted to lie to look better in the eyes of others, God, God is glorious. And so you really don't have to fear the disapproval of other people. When you're home alone and it's just you and the Internet, uh, God is good. God is so good. So you really don't have to look elsewhere. And when you're pretty sure that God is against you and you don't feel like you can go to him, God is gracious. He's so eager to receive you. He's so eager to welcome you. You don't have to prove yourself. I wonder, family, um, what lies are you likely to believe? You know what they are a lot better than I do. Like, what are the lies that you are likely to believe? And, and what is the truth that you can speak against those lies? Practice talking to yourself. Um, but uh, second, this isn't just about you and God. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's, it's so easy to forget when you're reading Paul's letters that he's never, well, I shouldn't say never, um, he's very rarely writing to individuals. Uh, he is writing to communities of people, and that's the case here. Like the spiritual warfare he envisions is not an individualistic endeavor. It's about the church, and so we desperately need each other. Um, we, in, in regular ways, we need to learn how to speak the truth in love to one another. And so there's an invitation here to, to practice speaking truth into each other's lives. I know a lot of you already have this dynamic in, your, in, your, um, in the life of our community, but if you don't, I want to encourage you to have like at least one or two people in your life who really know your areas of struggle, like you've just opened yourself to them in that way, and who are able to help you with the truth. And in particular, I, was, um, I went back this week and I was reading a little part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's wonderful little book, Life Together. And the whole last section of that book, he talks about confession and community. And he, I, I was tempted to just scratch the sermon this morning and read that chapter because it's so good. Um, he doesn't say it like this, but what becomes clear when you read Bonhoeffer is that, like, confession of sin is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare. Like, whenever we tell the truth about our failings and then receive the truth of God's forgiveness, which is, which is often just as hard as speaking the truth of our sin, um, we are participating in Jesus' work of defeating evil. What Bonhoeffer says and what can sound really threatening and scary, but it's actually like this wonderful gift, is that it's so much, um, it will, you will find it so much more healing and powerful if you do that with a flesh and blood brother or a flesh and blood sister than if you just do it by yourself with God. Like, not only because your brother or sister in that moment represents Christ to you in this tangible way, um, but also, you, there's just something powerful about hearing, um, I see your sin, 
and you are forgiven. Hearing that in a personal way, in an individual way, with a brother or sister, that uh, it's just different than kind of confessing to God and then trusting that it's true. Bonhoeffer talks a lot about that. So that's one way that you could practice spiritual warfare. Find a brother or sister, confess your sin, and then um, really believe it when they remind you of the gospel of grace. One more thing. Uh, up to this point, you know, you might have the impression that truth is something that God gives us uh, to possess and use or not according to our abilities. As if God says, like, here are some truths about me. Try to remember them when the devil comes at you with the lie. Good luck. Go in peace. But no, family. Um, the belt of truth is not a thing that we use. It's not a thing that we use. The belt of truth is a God who loves us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the devil comes at us with the lie that God doesn't love us, that he's not really good, that he's always holding out the threat of punishment over us, that his approval and acceptance depends on us. Like, what if it were up to us to master some truths about God to stand against that? I mean, I think you'd fail. I think I would fail too. Like, sooner or later, like, like we might be able to stand for a while, but sooner or later, we would fall. But you see, it's not a set of theological truths about God, about God that God gives us to know and, and to master. I mean, ultimately, God gives us himself. He gives us himself. The Father gives us the Son and Spirit. And it's Jesus, right, who is great and glorious and good and gracious. Like, he is greatness, glory, goodness, and grace in human form, and the Spirit takes your life and it puts you in Him. It unites you to Him so that what's true of Him is in some mysterious, mystical way that is actually like realer than this podium. Uh, it's true. It's true. Um, we can't possess Jesus. We can't control Jesus, but we can belong to Him, and we can learn to trust Him and love Him and we can abide with the one who is himself the truth. And so um, as we come to this table, that's the invitation for you this morning, to abide with Jesus, um, to let, like, remember last week I said, like, Paul gives us a lot to put on in all of his different letters. It's like, you know, there's, there's put on love, and there's put on the new self, and there's put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's put on the armor. And what I'm saying is that it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Put it on. Receive it. Embrace it. Let's pray, and then we'll eat.